Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I take a shot at breaking down the current bear market. From ultra-low interest rates, quantitative easing, lofty valuations, the drivers of inflation, and now higher interest rates and much more, we talk about how we got here, where we are today, and where we may go from here, and the perspective long-term investors should take when trying to make it through difficult market environments like this. We have some charts and visuals in this one, so you might want to watch it on YouTube. You can use the market valuation tool that we reference in podcast that we run on Validia by going to www.validia.com slash market dash valuation. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion. All right, Jack, today you and I are going to spend some time talking about um, the current market environment we're in. We're actually in bear market territory now this year. Um, Sort of, I guess, how we got here, uh, where we stand today and where we might go in the future. I mean, these are these are important things, I think, for long term uh, investors to sort of understand and consider. And hopefully um, as we work through this, you know, we can help people understand the things that are happening in the market and then, um, you know, give people some pieces of, of, of information or wisdom um, that can help them make it through um, to the to sort of maybe the other side of this when we come out of it. Um, so to start, let's just talk about maybe how we got here coming, uh, sort of what led up to this over the last few years, how we got here. And I think a big part of it starts with um, the Federal Reserve. So maybe I'll let you talk to some of that and then I'll, I'll add on. Yeah, you know, traditionally and the main policy tool of the Federal Reserve has been the idea of, you know, moving interest rates up and down. Um, and what you saw in the wake of 2008 is you saw the use of an additional tool, which is this, this, quantitative, this idea of quantitative easing or the Federal Reserve buying bonds. Um, you know, as another stimulative policy. And so it's just important to kind of keep that in mind as we work through this, because that tool was used in the wake of 2008. It was used a lot in the wake of 2020. And sort of it it helped, you know, the use of that tool sort of sets the stage for where we are. And, you know, one of the big things to keep in mind with that tool is a lot of people when the Fed started doing that said, well, that's going to be inflationary. It's going to drive up prices in the economy. And, you know, a lot of even well-known economists said that. And, you know, people we follow like Cullen Roche said, you know, well, that's not going to happen. And they ended up being right. And, you know, I think the key thing to keep in mind with quantitative easing is quantitative easing is essentially just an asset swap. So, you know, a bank that has a bond on its balance sheet is getting that replaced by cash. And so that money really never makes its way into the real economy. And so that money never gets in people's hands and gets used to buy goods. But what that money usually typically has done is it is, you know, it's been it's driven up asset prices. So that money has ended up in places like the stock market. You know, liquidity has been added to the system. The stock market has gone up. And so just as we set the stage, you know, with with the Fed, I think it's important to keep that in mind that that probably has been a significant driver of the market going into this period. And now we'll talk later about how that's reversing, but that, that's just setting that stage and thinking about the, the use of that tool is important as we head into this. But that is one of the things, I mean, during the financial crisis, you know, the, the Federal Reserve and the government had to come in big time. I mean, the Fed had to lower rates and keep rates low for a significant amount of time. And every time they tried to move, um, I think it was maybe, was it 20, it was a couple of years ago that the Fed started to raise rates and, you know, the market really reacted negatively. End of 18. 
Yeah, it was the taper tantrum, I guess. The Fed was really trying to move rates so that they had a tool to lower rates should we go into a recession in the future, whereas now it's more, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, it's more being driven by um, higher levels of, of inflation. But I mean, that is one thing that I think when you look at the level of interest rates over the last 10 years, you know, they're far, far below the historical average interest rates that we've had in this country going back to, you know, 100 years or so. Yeah, the other thing we should we should say about the Fed before we move on to the next thing is, is this idea of the Fed put, because that's something that's been in place for a long time now. And, and that's essentially the idea that if the stock market goes down enough, the Fed's going to pivot and they're, you know, they're, they're following, you know, although they're supposed to be looking at, you know, unemployment and inflation, there's this third thing they've been looking at, which is what the stock market's been doing. And what you saw in the end of 18 is you saw that Fed put kick in. So there were, we had like something like a 20% decline, the Fed reversed and the market went back up. And so historically speaking, at least since 2008, that, that Fed put has worked very well. You know, when you see those declines, the Fed is reversed and, and you end up with the market going back up. And we'll, we'll talk later about why that might not be there anymore, but it's just important to keep in mind that that, that has been something that's been in place you know, not officially in place, but unofficially in place, you know, in, in that period. So the other big thing that uh, happened during COVID was the massive injection of the fiscal stimulus that the government um, came in with. So, you know, consumers got money directly put in their hands or their bank accounts. Um, you had PPE with the payroll protection and, you know, you had trillions of dollars basically of fiscal stimulus. And that was very different than anything we'd seen you know, since the since the financial crisis and even during the financial crisis, you didn't see that level of, you know, direct money directly into consumers or companies bank accounts. And so that's another factor, I think, that sort of plays into sort of how we got here. Right. And as, as you said, that is a game changer. So when we talked about how monetary stimulus doesn't end up in people's pockets, so it doesn't end up being inflationary. Well, what the government did in the wake of 2020 is they put money in people's pockets. And when you do that, they are going to spend that money. And, you know, particularly as, as you work towards maybe the, the bottom end of the income range, you know, people who have lower incomes, when you give them money, they have a much higher propensity to spend that money. You know, if you give Elon Musk a dollar, it doesn't matter. If you give somebody towards the lower end of the income you know, range a dollar, they're going to spend the money. And so what happens is that type of stuff becomes inflationary. And, you know, the, what, what happened before, before, as we sort of headed into this year is, you know, we started off with some stimulus after 2020. We did some more. We did some more. And, you know, one of the challenges with this stuff is, is the effects of this is lagging. And so from the perspective of policymakers, what they were seeing is we were giving people this money. People were really happy to receive this money. We're not seeing any negative effects of this. You know, we, we took something that would have been a major crisis in 2020. We made it a lot better by putting money in people's hands. But and we're not seeing any negative effects. And, you know, one of the things and this is not a political thing because it's both sides of the aisle. One of the things that politicians will do is if they're doing something and there's positives associated with it in the short term and there's maybe unknown negatives in the long term, they're going to keep doing it. And, and that's basically what happened. And, and that's as we'll get to where we are today in a little bit. But that's essentially what happened is they kept piling fiscal package on top of fiscal package on top of fiscal package, which which was an inflationary thing. Now, I don't know if anyone has any like hard data on this, but, you know, there was this narrative going on in the market that, you know, a lot of young investors, at least, were taking their stimmy checks and, you know, putting it in places like Robinhood and investing. And that was you know, partly driving up the prices of stocks. I haven't seen any statistics on that. I'm sure some people did. Um, how much of it made its way to the overall stock market? I mean, we may never know. Um, I don't think that's something you can track. But the one thing we do know is coming into this year, stocks were really, really expensive. Um, and this is a chart we'll, we'll put in the presentation. Actually, if you're listening to this on, on Apple and you also follow us on YouTube, you might want to pop over there because we are going to put some charts in here. 
Uh, but the, the the I think coming into this year, the the Schiller PE the Cape ratio was uh, like something like 37 or maybe even close to 40. It was the second highest uh, Schiller PE historically, um, going all the way back you know to whatever the late 1800s. The highest peak was during the dot com boom and bust. Um, and that's come down given the decline. But I mean, that was one of the things coming into this year. We had very, very lofty valuations in the market. Yeah. And also just to pick up on your point about fiscal stimulus, you know, another way, you know, like you said, it's, it's hard to know how much of that money ended up directly in the stock market, but a lot of it indirectly did. And, and the reason is because when people spend money, the profits of corporations go up. And so we, we had a significant profit boom in the wake of 2020. And so that ends up you know, benefiting public companies. So, you know, whether it went directly into them or indirectly, you know, that, that also was, was likely something that was driving up the stock market. But to your point about valuations, yeah, no matter how you look at valuations, coming into this period, they were very high. So coming into the beginning of 2022, they were very high. I mean, they were not dot-com levels, but, you know, 37, you know, if, if you sort of look at this long-term chart of the Cape, um, you know, 37 is the second highest value ever next to 45 in the dot-com. So we, we did have high valuations. And, you know, one of the things we like to look at on our site is we have this chart of median valuations. Um, and median valuations is essentially you just take the valuation of every stock, you sort them in order, and you pick the middle one. And so that tells you nothing about the valuation of market cap weighted indexes, but it does give you a, sort of a general idea of how expensive is the average stock. And coming into this year, that also, you know, we, we've had that chart on our site since the end of 2005. Um, and, and that also was the highest it's ever been in that period. So the, the idea on valuations, and we'll talk about what's happened to them since then a little later, but valuations were ultra high coming into this year. And that, I think that's the most important point to keep in mind. Yeah. One of the things that sort of scared me is when I would see those charts of how many stocks that were trading above maybe 10 or 20 times sales. And I think we may have hit a peak in terms of the number of stocks trading at, you know, 20, I mean, we're not talking earnings now, we're talking 20 times sales. Um, which, you know, I think in earlier in the year, we may have had the most number of stocks actually trading at uh, those types of valuation multiples. But those are the stocks that actually have gotten hit the most in this downturn. It's the, it was the high growth names, the names that were in, you know, some of the funds like ARK and stuff like that. A lot of those stocks have actually been decimated here um, as this sell off has sort of materialized. Yeah, and to your point, and we'll put this chart in there as well, you know, if you looked coming into this year at growth versus value, growth was basically as expensive as it's ever been. Um, you know, there was, yeah, I mean, the, the spread between those two. So we kind of look at growth as the top 20% of our database um, and value is the bottom 20%. The spread between those two was at an all-time high. So, you know, for a long-term value investor, you, you might have seen a pretty good opportunity there in those spreads. But having said that, those spreads have been wide for a really long time. And so, you know, they're not a great timing tool. And so as much as they looked extreme, you know, they, they looked extreme for a very long period of time before anything happened about that. One of the things that we've been trying to do, and you've actually done a really good job at this, is trying to un understand market structure a little bit better and some of the sources and influences of you know stock market volatility, and it, it kind of comes out of the you know the GameStop like mean stock type of uh, events that occurred and and what drove that, but also sort of just looking at things like you know the impact of options and option dealers um, and the impact of passive investment flows. We had Mike Green on the podcast, and you know his idea is that you know the passive flows are going to become more and more important and influential in the market as more of the market goes passive. So, you know, these are just things, and I'll let you talk to these, but these are just things that, you know, we've been trying to wrap our arms around as sort of we've learned and grown as investors and trying to understand the impact of these things on the markets. 
Yeah, you know, these aren't necessarily something that, that are a huge issue for someone with an ultra long-term time horizon, but all of us are, are looking at the market, you know, on, on a fairly regular basis, and we're seeing this increased volatility in the market. And so one of the things we want to do with the podcast, and, you know, I'll, it's better to go to those episodes because we can't explain all this in complete detail here, but we've been trying to look at some things of why that volatility is higher. And, you know, one of the reasons is this, this whole idea of option dealers. Um, and, and basically the difference with options versus stocks is, you know, typically if someone's buying and selling Apple, you have people on the opposite side of that trade who have inverse opinions. You know, one person is positive and one person has some reason to be negative. But with, with options dealers, when you buy an option, the person taking the other side of that trade does not have the opposite opinion of you. And they don't want to have any position in, you know, in the outcome there. They want to be hedged against it. And so what happens is when people are buying options, these option dealers are buying and selling the stock behind the scenes in order to make sure that they don't have a position to make sure they're hedged. And what happens is, you know, those, those types of flows can really impact the market. They can be at certain times like this year, they can add to volatility and at other times they can reduce volatility. And, you know, I, I would recommend the episode we did with Brent Kachuba to learn more about this, but just the general idea is that that is a source of either reducing volatility or adding to volatility, but it's, it's, it's playing a big role in what's happening in the market on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's important to understand. And then, you know, like you mentioned, the episode of Mike Green is also really good because one of the things Mike has shown is that passive investing is rising a lot. And, and as passive investing has risen, there, there's a couple of, of side effects of that. One is you get this sort of slow drift up in the market. You know, when someone adds money to their 401k, no one, it doesn't matter what the valuations of those stocks are in the passive vehicles, that money will just be invested. It'll be invested in market cap weighted indexes. You know, that, that tends to have more of a positive impact on the biggest stocks. Um, and then, but then also what that can do is it can increase volatility. And so in certain periods, you know, there are less active investors out there. Um, and so when passive might flip the other way, you, you can have, you can have a significant period, you know, where, where volatility goes up. And you know, so Mike kind of talks about it with some extreme levels. Like you could really, this could really drive up the market to really, really high valuations, but it could also cause some significant meltdowns. So uh, I recommend people go to his episode to learn more about it. But the general idea is there's these things out there, whether it be option dealers, whether it be the rise of passive, there's, there's these other things out there that are more flows based that are having an impact on the market on a day to day basis. Yeah. So in, in, in about 15 minutes, you know, we are sort of trying to sum up how we got to where we are today and where we are today is we are in a period, at least from uh, an inflation standpoint, where there's two different, I guess, drivers or catalysts that are uh, driving inflation here. Um, one is, and we talked about earlier, that amount of fiscal stimulus that came in. So you have this demand-driven um, pressure on the market. So there's too much money you know, chasing, uh, well, we'll talk about the too few goods part, but there's, a, there's a, you know, consumers have a lot of excess money, and especially with certain parts of the market, like you had housing prices, uh, are up significantly, even though that's starting to moderate more recently. I mean, used car vehicle prices were skyrocketing, you know, and then you have, I'll let you talk, Jack, to the supply side issues, but, you know, we're seeing the highest inflation I think that we've seen basically since the late 70s in terms of this 8 9% annualized inflation. Now, we are seeing certain things like commodity prices to some extent moderate here, especially in the metals, but, you know, it's still it's still here front and center. And this is a, this is an inflationary environment that many investors, including me and you. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to our days at UConn with, uh, you know, economics 101 or whatever it was called. You know, this is basically a supply and demand issue. You know, with, with any situation, if, if you increase demand while supply is constricting, 
what's going to happen is price is going to go up. And so, like you said, we had all this fiscal stimulus. We had, we had a bunch, you know, probably too many fiscal stimulus packages. The effect took a while to get into the system, but people, you know, demand for goods went up. And then on the supply side, you know, COVID was obviously a big, you know, big caused big issues with supply chains. The Ukraine crisis certainly made it worse. And so you've got the perfect recipe for high inflation. You know, you've got high demand, reduced supply, you've got high inflation. And so that's kind of where we are now is, you know, we're printing some of the highest CPI numbers we've ever, we've seen since, you know, other than people who were in the seventies managing money, for those of us that, that weren't doing that, I mean, this is the highest level of inflation we've seen in our career. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk maybe about where, where that might go in the future. And obviously we don't know that, but the, the idea is that that set the stage for very high inflation and that's where we are right now. See, some people think that the supply side, and this is where the Fed was, you know, up until maybe a couple months ago, that a lot of the supply chain issues would, you know, work themselves out. And I think you can sort of think that that will occur. It's just what's changed in the world and what's changed in the market is, the whole supply side strategy, you know, where are you sourcing your important or maybe even food and things like that from? Um, you know, I think the war in Ukraine and COVID sort of has opened up companies and consumers' eyes to, you know, where are we getting this from? And, you know, you could see, you, I, I don't know, you could just see supply the supply side of it not working its way through as quickly as some might have anticipated um, at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, if you look at something like oil, you know, that, that's a good example of it. Um, you know, we obviously have the ability to put a lot more oil supply online in the United States, but it's not like you just go up to these drills, you know, and hit the on button and like suddenly oil starts gushing out of there. It takes time to do it. Um, and, and so the supply chain issues will, will likely eventually work themselves out, but you know, it's hard to figure out how long it'll take. And, and the other thing we didn't talk about earlier, but we should have is this idea that, you know, remember back in late last year, the fed said, well, inflation is transitory. So, is, is inflation really transitory? Were they wrong about that? And, and the answer is, you know, they were, but they also weren't. You know, inflation certainly is transitory, but what matters is what period is it transitory over? So when the Fed said that, people kind of got the idea it's transitory over a short period of time. It's going to go up and it's going to come right back down. Obviously, you know, looking at a five-year period, inflation is likely transitory. We're not going to likely be seeing 8% inflation five years from now. But, you know, that, that's sort of the idea of like the importance of words and the importance of, you know, explaining what's going on because it, it is transitory, but it, it's lasted a lot longer than they thought it was. <clears throat> and by the way, the negative effects of inflation, obviously from a, a consumer standpoint, you're paying more for whatever it is, gas, food, energy, um, clothes, whatever it might be. So that's less savings. You know, your money only goes so far, especially if you're someone that has a fixed income. Think about retirees on pensions and stuff like that. Um, and then from a company standpoint, you know, obviously input costs are higher and wages are possibly higher. So if you think about that, you know, that means less profits fall to the bottom line. So this is why inflation, as Warren Buffett says, swindles everyone because, you know, from the consumer standpoint, less money in your bank account, your money goes, money doesn't go as far. And from the corporate standpoint, um, you know, it, uh, it can hurt. It can hurt profits, and then and then we have the you know to combat inflation. We have the Federal Reserve coming in and hiking interest rates, and higher interest rates means higher borrowing costs, and that has a whole series of effects on the market and sort of business and economies as those rates 
move higher. Yeah. So, you know, get, getting to the Fed, you know, obviously we've seen them increasing rates and, you know, we've also seen them, you know, before they ever increased rates, they use this, this idea of forward guidance, which is the idea that, you know, what Ben Hunt calls the Fed's words. And so the Fed, by effectively telling you they're going to do something, they can generate the effects of actually doing it in advance. And so that, that's kind of what we've had this year. You know, I was, Joe Weisenthal had a chart on Twitter recently, and we'll see if we can maybe find it and put it in the in the video, but the idea was the pace at which financial conditions in the economy have tightened during this tightening cycle is the greatest of all time, or, or at least as far as data goes back. So we've been the amount that has been tightened in, in a short period of time is you know very high relative to what's occurred in the past. And you know that might be justified because we're seeing very high rates of inflation, but it was just interesting to see how fast it's happened. And so how are they doing that? They're, they're doing it through forward guidance, telling you what they're gonna do. They're doing it through higher rates now. They're hiking at each meeting. And they're also doing it now through quantitative tightening. And so if you think about the idea before of quantitative easing, well, the Fed was buying bonds. Now what the Fed's going to do is they're going to reduce their holdings of bonds. But in order to understand that, I think it's important to kind of think about the different phases of quantitative tightening. So obviously quantitative easing, they're just buying bonds. But in tightening, you know, there's different ways they can do that. So what, what they did at first before they started tightening is they said, all right, let's keep our balance sheet constant. And so keeping their balance sheet constant, it doesn't mean they do nothing. It means they have to continue to buy bonds. And the reason they have to continue to buy bonds is there's roll off. So obviously some of the bonds in their portfolio are maturing on, on a regular basis and, and they're just buying it back to keep their balance sheet constant. So now we've moved into quantitative tightening. And so what, what's happening right now is they're still buying bonds. And, and the reason they're still buying bonds is the amount of quantitative tightening they've decided to do is not equal to the roll off. And so there, there's more bonds rolling off than they're gonna, you know, than they're gonna buy back. So or then, then they want to roll off of their balance sheet. And so they're buying bonds right now, but their balance sheet is being reduced. And so there could be a next phase beyond this where you effectively just let all of it roll off. And so you're not buying any bonds. And then obviously longer term, there could be a final phase where they actually start selling bonds. But right now what they're doing is that they're, let, they're letting a portion, a portion of that balance sheet run off. They're still buying some bonds. And so that, that is a tightening in addition to higher rates, in addition to they're continuing to use forward guidance to tell you know, the market, here's what we plan to do in the future. And, and what they're saying right now is that they're gonna be doing you know, a bunch more tightening. And this has a number of spillover effects that are affecting the stock market. And so let's sort of talk through those because this is really, I think for a lot of people listening, this is pretty much like where we are right now with higher rates and this quantitative tightening happening. So the first thing that we're seeing this year is, well, a couple things. You're seeing relative outperformance of value versus growth stocks, even though both cohorts of stocks are down value is outperforming growth on a relative basis. And we'll talk about why that is in a minute. Um, you're also seeing bonds down. So the 60-40, I believe, is having maybe one of its worst years ever because you have losses. If you just take a standard 60-40 portfolio, let's say 60% S&P 500, which is down around 20% this year, and then 40% uh, like an aggregate bond index might be down something like, um, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15% this year. So, you know, the 60-40 might be looking at something like a 15% loss year to date, which is, you know, really painful for people in that type of investment allocation. But these higher rates have a number of different knock-on effects. Um, and so let's talk through those. I mean, the first thing is when we're talking about growth stocks, Jack, and the present value of those cash flows way out in the future, when you have higher rates, that obviously impacts the value of those cash flows significantly. Yeah, I mean, it impacts all stocks, but it impacts growth stocks more. So the idea is basically if I have a series of cash flows in the future, I'm going to discount those cash flows in, in order to look at what they're worth to me today. I'm going to discount them back with some sort of interest rate. And as interest rates rise, that discount rate goes up. 
And so that should make, in theory at least, that should make all stocks worth less because all stocks, there are no stocks that have all their you know, cash flows in the present. All of them have some degree of future cash flows. They're all long duration assets, but growth, duration, growth stocks are the longest duration assets. And so those should be impacted the most. Um, so, so in theory, at least, what should, be happen- what should be happening is what's happening. You know, rates are going up. Growth stocks are coming down. Values performing better on, on a relative basis. You know, what's interesting about that, though, is you know, if you look historically at the relationship between value versus growth and interest rates, that is not true. So growth stocks have not done worse historically during periods of high rates, you know, and value stocks have not done better. Um, and, and it's interesting, like a lot of people, AQR has looked at this and there might be a slight relationship, but it's a weak relationship. But also you have this idea that we talked about with Ben Hunt of narrative. Um, so if everyone believes that ultimately growth stocks are going to do worse during a period of high rates and believe the logic I just said, well, then that's what they're going to position their portfolios with. So they're going to go sell growth stocks. And so, you know, this might be a lot largely narrative driven thing here. You know, people are saying, you know, this is what makes sense in this environment. You know, that's the narrative. So I'm going to do it. Um, so anyway, but that, that's essentially what's been happening in, in the equity markets. You know, equity markets are obviously down. Um, inflation is a significant risk and higher rates are a significant risk for the equity market. It's down um, and growth stocks have been underperforming substantially. The other thing like coming in, like we talked about earlier, I mean, growth stocks were so highly valued coming to this year they would have had to deliver on you know almost unrealistic expectations to like grow into those valuations so to your point about the cash flows maybe this is being in this environment the downturn is being in growth is being accentuated by this higher rate thing because of the mathematics but maybe when you look at the regimes of value versus growth historically you know you don't get the interest rate um sort of narrative, if you will, that we just sort of talked about. It's not as strong uh, to your point about what some of this other research shows of value versus growth and interest rates. Um, a couple other things um, that are happening. Obviously, you have this, you have you, up until recently, you know, you've had a massive um, uptick in commodities. What's interesting is commodities did terribly from like, you know, 2005, 2006, all the way up until, I don't know, like what, mid to late 2020. And then, you know, they exploded higher. And you do tend to get these sort of massive moves in uh, commodities one way or another. You sort of have these commodities super cycles, at least historically, that have happened, which kind of plays into some of the strategies that are all alternatives that look, that use momentum and things like that that can go into commodities. You know, those types of strategies actually have done better this year because they've had some commodity exposure. Yeah, and this gets at the idea of, you know, is the 60-40 portfolio enough, which we, we've talked about in other episodes. But, you know, coming into this year, expected returns on bonds were terrible. Expected returns on stocks were terrible. You know, you had the potential for inflation. You, you could have made a pretty strong argument that, you know, you needed something in addition to your, your bonds and your stocks in the portfolio. And people who did add exposure to commodities have done very well this year, which you'd expect. I mean, obviously, inflation is very high, so the prices of commodities are going to do very well. But to your point, um, you know, commodities are not something typically – you want to hold long term in your portfolio because they go through these horrendous periods, you know, where they do really poorly. And you know, if if you're going to hold commodities, typically using some sort of trend following is a good idea. And you know, for people who have done that, they've been you know capitalizing on this positive trend in commodities. And you know, these multi-asset type portfolios that go beyond stocks and bonds, you know, the risk parity type things have done a lot better this year than a 60/40 portfolio. One of the other things we're seeing, and I think it's in both public and private markets, but is a lot of investors, whether it's individual investors or investors in private companies like venture capitalists, you know, want to see companies getting positive cash flow or trying to see, have a line of sight to positive cash flow as quickly as possible. Because, you know, as liquidity sort of gets tighter and um, 
so some of these growth stocks you know come in that has sort of downstream effects all the way to all these private companies that are have raised you know significant venture capital money but it's like i think those those vcs are basically saying you know we're going to focus on our top tier companies the one in our portfolio that have the best prospects and everyone else you know you better start thinking about you know getting making your cash last as long as possible and uh, you know, generating positive cash flow as quickly as possible. Yeah, what's interesting to me, and you know, this is we sort of lived through the 2000 uh, dot com bubble. You know, when we were a small company, and you know, a small company that didn't make it. Um, you know, is this idea that I think the VCs and everybody is shifting a lot faster this time. So back then, you know, it took a long time for people to kind of realize, all right, we can't go to this growth at any cost approach. We have to generate cash in these businesses. You know, right now, I mean, you've seen all the major VC firms out really, you know, quickly with these things for their founders, essentially saying you have to focus on cash flow. You know, you have to increase your runway. You know, you have to make your money last. You know, even if you have to do that at the expense of growth, you have to do that or you're not going to make it. And so I don't know what that means yet, but I think that that's an interesting difference. But getting back to your, to your point about cash flows, you know, when you have unlimited money available to you at effect, effectively 0% rates and you want to grow, what are you going to do? You're going to use that money and you're going to use that money to grow your business. And so a lot of businesses that are very long duration businesses can do really well in that period. You know, if you think about like SpaceX or something like that, you know, something that's going to take a very long time to generate positive cash flow. Those businesses can do very well because they just have access to capital, to capital after cap, you know, more capital, more capital, more capital. But what happens when you get into this inflationary environment is you're going to get, get into a situation where it's, it's much more expensive to borrow this money or to get this money, or you can't get it at all. And, and when you get into that situation, cash flows become really important because it's how you fund your business. And so if, you know, if a company produces positive cash flow, then it doesn't have to go to other people to get cash to run its business. It can just generate, use that cash flow to grow its business. And so although a lot of us have sort of talked about fundamentals didn't really matter you know, in this past decade, fundamentals might matter a lot more here. And the reason is because companies that generate cash are the ones that are going to survive. They're the ones that are going to have money to grow. And so that's a huge difference when you get into these higher rate and inflationary environments. Right. Um, getting back to sort of the market valuation here, we, we do have a tool on Validia it's called the market valuation tool. And what we do is we look at the market through a bunch of different valuation metrics, and then you can have segments of the market. So for example, you can say, you know, um, show me large cap value versus small cap value on you know various valuation metrics and compare and contrast different segments to see where there might be more value or less value and so there's a lot of different ways to sort of slice and dice that that tool and, and that data um but it is it is interesting like when we look at the market's overall value you know given where things have come down as much as they have you know the market looks kind of cheap here using the way we do it based on, um, I think, like you were saying, the median stock. Yeah. So there's two different ways to look at this. One is sort of the valuation of your market cap weighted indexes. And, you know, we'll put this chart back up that we, we talked about at the beginning. You know, the market's cape was 37 or so coming into this. Now it's 29. So that's it's not as expensive, but it's still very expensive. Um, historically, 29. I think the average over time is something like 17. Um, and even the average in the past, you know, few decades when valuations have been higher is still, you know, something in the 20s. So we're, we're still pretty high on the valuation of market cap weighted indexes. Um, but then when you look at the median stock, what's happened is we went from the highest we've seen, you know, since we've been tracking this in 2005 to effectively getting, getting very close to the lowest we've seen. Um, you know, the only lower period now, we're kind of similar to where we were at the bottom of 2020 and, and 2008 was lower. But you know, if you look at just the median stock in our database, at least on you know we're using the current uh, year earnings estimate here, 
things have gotten a lot cheaper. Now, now there are some caveats to keep in mind with that. One is basically that this is on this is on earnings. If, if we put the same chart up on sales, it's a different picture. It's, it's much more expensive. And the reason is because margins are very high right now. The other thing is if we are going into recession, you know, a lot of people think earnings estimates have to come down. And if earnings estimates come down, then valuations are going to go up. So this is using what earnings estimates are today, June 29th, 2022. Obviously, if earnings estimates have to come down, the market's going to look more expensive. But but it is interesting that, you know, your average stock here, your median stock does look pretty inexpensive. And, you know, there's been a, there's a lot of different ways to look at it besides the way we have. And you'll see other charts on Twitter. But I think that is an interesting thing here, given the amount of de- the declines we've seen. Yeah. And we also do do the value versus growth. And even though value has outperformed growth handily this year, you know, value still looks cheap relative to growth stocks, at least going back to 2005, which is what our data goes back to. Yeah, you know, we went from basically the first first percentile to maybe the 12th percentile or so. So value isn't as cheap, but it's still extremely cheap. Um, Yeah, and one of the other things that changed this year is if you look at value on an absolute basis, so don't compare it to growth, just say, you know, how cheap are value stocks in general? I mean, they're they're also, you know, basically all-time lows from when we've tracked this in 2005. So value stocks, both on an absolute and a relative basis, are still very, very cheap. Relative, they're not as cheap as they were, but on absolute, they're actually significantly cheaper because although they've outperformed this year, they have gone down. Um, And they've gone down while earnings are still going up. So if you're a believer that, you know, current earnings or current earnings estimates are at least somewhat of a reasonable predictor of what's going to happen in the future, then, you know, your your median stock looks pretty cheap and your, your median value stock looks very cheap. Just as a side note, did you see that uh, the Russell uh, rebalanced their portfolios? And I think Facebook, there was a couple of these big tech names that got basically moved from the value 1000 growth to the value 1000 value index. Yeah, I did see that. You know, it was interesting. I mean, Facebook, you could maybe make a case and they're, they're using price to book as one of the primary things there, which is why it's it's happening. But some of them, it's hard to. I mean, like I think Zoom is now in the value index. Um, so some of them are kind of hard to justify. But yeah, you, you have seen some of the big tech names have become, you know, a little bit more of a value play than they were. And I, and I think you nailed it. I mean, I think it, it really comes down to and this is where we're going to get into sort of where we go from here. And anyone that has listened to Jack and I talk should probably know that we're not big on forecasts and predictions and um, trying to, you know, game where the market's going to go in the next 12 months, because that's basically impossible to do. And anybody that can say that that anybody that does it can't do it consistently. So but um, I do think the million dollar question is, you know, whether we go into a recession or not, because what history would tell you is if you get 20 to 30 percent decline and you actually have a shallow recession or no recession, then, you know, usually those would be buying opportunities. You know, if we go into a recession and growth slows and corporate profits get hit, you know, you could definitely see this bear market, you know, being something like your more standard traditional uh, bear market where, you know, stocks are down 35% plus. Um, well, well, first of all, I'm disappointed that I'm not going to get Justin's 12 month market call here <laughs> because, you know, when we signed up to do this, I thought I was going to get it and I thought I was going to know whether I need to go all in or not. Um, but yeah, you know, thinking about it, I mean, obviously it's impossible to predict where the market's going to go from here. You know, we just don't know. Um, you know, you do know that over the long term for long term investors, every correction, every bear market, they're always buying opportunities. But, you know, the buying opportunity doesn't always come right away. So if we're 20% down now, I mean, you know, we might go down 40%. And so 10 years from now, you're still going to you're still going to probably do pretty well with that. But, you know, timing when this is going to end is, is very difficult. And, you know, one of the points I think it's really important to make here is where we go from here, although we don't know, it's always a function of expectations versus reality. So, 
The market's not going to necessarily tank because inflation is very, very high. The market's going to keep going down because inflation continues to exceed expectations. You know, you have a certain level of inflation built into the market right now. And, and where we go in the future is going to very much be a function of what is the reality relative to those expectations. And, you know, we have people on Twitter we follow who are exceptionally smart, who think that reality is going to be inflation is going to continue to exceed expectations. And that's going to be really bad for the market. We have other people who are really smart who think inflation has already peaked. We're, we're, we're headed into, you know, at least a mild recession. Everything's going to start going down the other way. And, you know, we're, we're not smart enough to know, you know, what, what's going to happen. But what we do know is that as the market declines for, for investors, future expected returns go up. As valuations go down, long-term future expected returns go up. And, and I think that's the only thing we can kind of have faith in as an investor is, you know, as that, as that market decline is happening, my, my future, although I'm losing money now, my future gets to look brighter. Now, whether your short-term future, what's going to happen there, we don't know. But the, the long-term future, the seven to 10-year future looks brighter as, as these, you know, as the market continues to go down. And as investors, we have a recency bias in us. So we're always more influenced about what is happening more recently in the here and now. And, you know, I did write an article last week around things that could go right in the market. But then I sort of ended the article by saying, even if none of those, and this is to your point, even if none of those materialize, if investor expectations are um, like in a worst case scenario, and these things come in a little bit better, the market still could react sort of positively. And, you know, I sort of started that article with the AAII in Senate poll, um, which shows that you know a very, very high amount of bearishness right now for all the things that we've kind of talked about and highlighted here. But as investors as a group, you know our emotions tend to get get the best of us um, in certain times. And so that, that's important to remember and think about when you're sort of in the midst of a bear market or you're thinking about corrections or bear markets and where the market might go. Yeah, and that idea of sentiment, you know, that, that shows kind of how hard this is. So, you know, for most of this year, sentiment has been horrible. Um, you know, I think that, is it Bank of America that does that fear and greed index? I don't know who does it, but it's, I mean, it basically is maximum fear. It, it is the, the most it could possibly be in the direction of fear. And, you know, typically as investors, what we're taught is, you know, take the opposite side of that. You know, if, if sentiment is really terrible and everybody's fearing, you know, we want to be greedy. But the problem is throughout this year, that's, that's continued to be the case and the markets continue to go down. So, you know, it, it's really, I think the biggest lesson here is it's really hard. And, you know, unless you're a really expert investor who has, you know, great information, you know, it's very, very hard to try to time any of this. And, you know, for, for your average investor, it's great to understand this. It's good to, to understand what's going on. But, you know, th there's not really much you can do in terms of figuring out, like, what expectations are embedded in the market and, you know, what's my economic forecast and how's that going to be different than expectations? You know, I'm just not smart enough to do that. And, and I think most people aren't either. So, you know, I don't know what else you can do besides have a long-term strategy that you believe in and that you can stick with. And that doesn't have to be a hundred percent equity strategy. It can be a strategy that's multi-asset class. It can be a lot of things, but I don't know what you can do in periods like this other than have your long-term strategy and stick with it and just try to ride these things out. Yep. I agree. I think that that's what investors should be doing and taking a long-term view is, is, is the most important, important one. So hopefully this has been helpful um, in terms of understanding how we got here, where we are today. And even though you didn't get my 12-month market prediction, um, hopefully we ended it on a, on, a, on a good positive note. So thank you guys for watching and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.